gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, it's Friday morning, and uh, I apologize in advance because uh, I do this morning tweet thing. It's a it's a silly little thing. People like it. It began during the pandemic, um, where I take a picture of Pippa every morning. Pippa is the our crazy English Springer Spaniel, and um, she tells you what day of the week it is and it has some observation or complaint or, or, or pithy aside and then says, also, I love you because she loves everybody. She goes up to people and just says, do you, will you love me? Um, and it was a cute little joke. And I re- reason it started during the pandemic was with all the lockdowns and people staying at home, people were forgetting what day of the week it was. And so it was like a little reminder thing. And then it just sort of took on a life of its own. Anyway, the only reason I bring it up is today Pippa got the day of the week wrong. And I, and she said that it was Thursday when it is in fact Friday. And it, it threw a lot of people for a loop. Of course, no one actually blames Pippa. They bizarrely blame me for it. But anyway, it started the morning off in a weird way. Um, speaking of weird things. So yesterday I, uh, I moderated, hosted whatever. Um, my old boss, Ben Wattenberg, used to call himself an immoderator. Um, the dispatch podcast and it was fun. Uh, the reason I was doing it was Sarah was somewhere and so was Steve and, and David, you know, went off to the hinterlands. And, um, so, uh, um, it fell to me to do it. Sorry, I'm distracted. My text thing, I have it on do not disturb, but I can see it coming in and everyone's talking about how, you know, I didn't dig the grave deep enough. Anyway, oh, I so I had to do this thing. I've talked about this before. You know, a lot of the, you know, more refined podcasts with hosts, you know, who um, remove the dishes from the sink before they urinate in it um, and, you know, wear belts. Uh, a lot of the fancier podcasts, they'll do this thing, which Sarah does, which is like she'll announce the topics at the top of the show to keep people on board. Um, to the end. Uh, the best example of this is, uh, the, the economists intelligence podcast, which I listen to quite a bit in many ways. Um, I think of it as sort of like what a morning dispatch podcast might be if we had the resources to, that the economist has. Um, and it, it's, everyone is, th- each one is three topics. And the thing that they do is they begin by saying the, the, the second and third topics, like they pitch those and then they go, but first, and then they do the main topic thing and it keeps you hanging on. Um, sometimes it has the result of letting you stop after the first one or first two, cause you don't care about the third, but generally speaking, it's done really, really well. Sarah does this. We're going to be talking about this. We're going to do that. And we're going to about this other thing. And then we're going to ask this last thing. And, um, I feel like this podcast could use that kind of structure. The problem, of course, is as I am sitting here um, alone at my desk um, rambling and um, uh, and I never know where these things are going to go. But I, I usually take notes in the form of writing like three or four things down. So here's here's what I wrote down. I have no idea if we'll get to it all. I wrote Pippa Day. Um, I wrote Hayek versus Crystal. 
Doomsday Clock, Schumpeter's Children. This really does sound like a very, very, very dorky intro to the categories on Jeopardy. And finally, Classified Docs Dash Jessica. And this is, I got to tell you, is something that, you know, this is a problem with a lot of politicians. It was a big problem with Trump uh, that they always listen to the last person they talk to. Um, and every morning before I do this, the last person I talk to is, um, my lovely bride, uh, Jessica Gavora, who, you know, I still get emails about that podcast I did with her, but how much people liked it. I'm almost tempted to listen to it because I, you know, I'm used to talking to my wife and the fact that so many people found it charming makes me wonder what they hear that I don't hear because sort of like fish don't know they're wet kind of thing. Anyway, it's not a huge problem because I think my wife is a, brilliant and talented lady and knows a lot of things and usually is they're good conversations to have, but she has an outsized influence on what ends up as topics on here. As does, I am afraid to say on the other side of the coin, the TV show morning Joe, because that's often in the background, though I find myself muting it more and more for various and sundry reasons. Uh, classified docs dash Jessica for 200 dispatch listeners um, or remnant listeners. So I don't have a lot more to say about the the classified documents stuff. We'll see who, what other shoes drop. I mean, it's, you know, the, the phrase, you know, shoes drop is a weird archaic one to begin with, but probably just need, you know, millipedes wearing sneakers, given how often this is happening now. Um, but we talked about this a bunch on the Dispatch Live podcast. We talked about it on the, the, the Dispatch podcast itself. And those guys over at AO have done it a lot as well. I don't want to talk about the politics of it. There is this one point, though, that, um, you know, keeps coming up about in this debate about overclassification. And yeah, 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 yeah. I want to be very clear. The only reason we're talking about overclassification is because somebody, because Biden is in trouble. And um, if this was all still a story about Trump, um, we wouldn't be talking about the the scourge of overclassification in the way that we are now, which doesn't mean that we don't classify too much stuff. I think I think it's a true observation, but if you weren't bothered by it um, before it became a problem for Biden, um, you know, maybe you should sit out a couple of plays. I've always been somewhat sympathetic to, to Moynihan wrote a great book on this. I think it was just called Secrecy. And I liked it because, uh, Patrick Moynihan, I liked it because it was at a very high level of generalization in some ways, it was just talking about the problem of secrecy itself. And then, you know, it would dip down below the clouds to address specific things. I do think, but so everybody who wants to talk about the problem of overclassification in some sort of profound philosophical sense talks about how it is a problem for democracy and accountability and, and all of that. And I agree with a lot of that. Um, I think that there is a, general tendency among uh, people in power to try to do everything they can to inflate the importance of the stuff that they're doing. And one way of doing that is by putting some sort of, you know, metaphorical, you know, wax seal um, with your signet ring saying this is a holy document. And um, that kind of thing happens a lot. At the same time, and this is why I bring in the fair Jessica, as listeners, probably recall, um, she worked for the Department of Justice. She worked for John Ashcroft um, when he was Attorney General uh, during the war on terror stuff. And 
part of her job was to write speeches and statements making the public case for the administration's policies um, and the Justice Department's policies in combating the war on terror. And the problem she ran into all of the time was that when they were trying to make, you know, the case, and we can debate whether it was the right policy or not, that's not my point. But when she was trying to make the case for why, you know, the DOJ needed this authority um, or that the administration was right to do that, um, she would want to cite examples of plots that have been thwarted, threats that have been identified, threats that are still ongoing. And, you know, as my wife was saying, is the FBI would just simply say, nope, nope, that's all secret. You can't know any of it. And, or you can't talk about any of it publicly. And, and so I just think it's an interesting point insofar as we talk about how the secrecy stuff um, prevents uh, holding public officials accountable, and it does. But the secrecy stuff also prevents, you know, we, we always think about accountability as like punishing people when they're doing wrong. But accountability is also about supporting people when they're doing right. And if you can't release some of this information for any number of reasons, sources and methods to just sort of hoarding secrets, whatever. Um, if you can't release the information that proves that what you're doing is correct um, or justifiable, uh, it actually erodes support for what government is doing. So I think it cuts both ways. And I just, I just thought it was an interesting point that hadn't really occurred to me. Um, so where to go from here? Uh, let's talk about the doomsday clock. Um, I might write about this. Uh, uh, I had to do CNN the other night. Um, very late. Uh, I don't mind. People at CNN have been great to me. Um, I understand people's complaints about CNN. I would argue from a legitimate conservative perspective and as a longtime sort of liberal media, uh, media critic type, uh, that um, CNN's moving in a better direction and all that. But, you know, discount my views all you like they pay me to be on their tv but anyway i was on cnn the other night happy to do cnn but they wanted me like to do the 11 p.m show and let me just say i am not wired anymore i have sort of curated my life to wake up at dawn or pre-dawn with dogs and get most of my work done my most of my creative work done in mornings and staying up that late because the problem is it's not just you know being in a studio till midnight it's then you have to drive home, um, you know, you're completely sober, obviously, and um, you're kind of caffeinated and wired up and you're thinking about what you, what you said, what you didn't say. Um, it's about a half hour drive home and just, it's really difficult to fall asleep. And so uh, anyway, I, it, it put me off my feed for two days. Uh, just, I don't, nice people, perfectly fine, all that. But uh, they wanted me to talk about, they wanted to talk about the doomsday clock, the doomsday clock. And it is a sign of what a um, born and raised um, Cold War anti-communist guy that I am that uh, I kind of went off. You know, you're supposed to send little talking points about where you come down on the different topics and that kind of thing. And I sent a note to the, to the booker saying, 
you know, just so you know, I think the doomsday clock is hot garbage. Um, it's propaganda, um, et cetera. And I, and I do believe that. I think that when you think about it, it's, it's difficult for me to think of, and I'd be interested to hear from listeners about other examples, but of a more successful, you can call it propaganda if you want, but a more successful PR gimmick in American history, I cannot think of one, right? This thing was created in 1947 um, for like defensible, understandable reasons. It was a bunch of, some of the guys from the Manhattan Project were like um, in full, my God, what have we done mode? And um, wanted to warn the world about the dangers of nuclear proliferation and nuclear war. And so they came up with this clock. And my understanding is that the artist made it seven minutes to midnight because that looked cool. Um, and it wasn't really based on anything. And since then, it's taken on this. It's become like the sort of a cottage industry think tank profit center. If you go to the uh, bulletin, it's put up by the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. That's the name of the organization. And it's. It's both sort of a think tank and a, a public and a journal. Um, and I got no problem. Look, I, I come from think tank world. I, I think think tanks are fine. I mean, they're good think tanks and they're bad think tanks. There were once good think tanks that are becoming bad think tanks. There's all sorts of, you know, there are think tanks that are, um, that have always been in the pocket of certain interests. There are other think tanks that haven't. Um, there are certain think tanks that are very ideological. There are other think tanks that are very academic. We could have, my friend Tevi Troy on here, and we could talk at great length about the the variety and differences between different kinds of think tanks. He wrote a book on think tanks. Um, so I got no problem with think tanks per se. I have no problem with think tanks putting out statements or opinions or declarations or warnings or any of that kind of stuff. But the Bulletin for Atomic Scientists is basically just a magazine, an ideological Good. I'm not saying or good or bad, but I, I don't think it's a bad publication or anything like that. Nor do I think the organization is necessarily quote unquote bad. I have my disagreements with it, but it's just another think tank, basically left of center with a certain focus on certain kinds of issues, climate change, biosecurity, and of course, arms control and nuclear weapons that puts out an opinion every year. And if you look at the coverage that the, the doomsday clock gets, Every freaking year, it's infuriating. It's always scientists say we're closer to annihilation than ever. That was this year. You know, scientists say we're moving one minute back from the brink. Scientists warn, blah, blah, blah. And like, it's kind of like in the, you know, I know I bring this up a lot, but, you know, in, in, in Parks and Recreation, there's this cult, you know, that worships uh, a lava breathing giant lizard that's going to destroy the earth. Um, named Zorp, but the cult calls itself the reasonableists. The reason was, is they, they figured that anyone, they, they could paint anybody who attacked them as being against reason. Just because these guys call themselves scientists and, and lean into the scientists and some, and they have scientists working there. Don't get me wrong, but so does, so do like literally hundreds of think tanks have some scientists, but there is nothing, nothing particularly scientific about this doomsday clock thing. It is just a piece of uh, pro arms control, mildly sort of peacenik propaganda. Um, and if you read the fine print from some of the people who work there, they'll say so, but you still, they still 
want the headlines saying scientists say this, scientists say that. And, you know, part of my problem with it, going back to the earliest days of the Cold War, is that it is using sort of fear, grounding it in the, the aura of science, grounding it in the aura of expertise, basically saying, hey, look, this isn't just our opinion from a bunch of people with sort of political commitments and priors. We're scientists. And saying that basically any interruption or diversion from their arms, pro-arms control agenda is bringing us closer to nuclear annihilation and you should heed our warning. And there's so many, there's so, it just checks so many of the boxes of my peeves about how we do public discourse. You know, I, there are whole sections I could quote you from all three of my books that pertain to all of this stuff. But, you know, part of the problem is, is like, even if the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists was written and run entirely by physicists and other, you know, uh, science, hard sciences guys, you know, engineers, whatever, um, they don't have particularly um, authoritative expertise on how the war in Ukraine is going to play out, never mind climate change and, you know, misinformation. That's the thing is that this year they moved the clock closer to midnight and midnight represents the total annihilation of life on earth and the human race. Um, and we're now, I don't know, like seconds, I can't remember how many seconds from mid from midnight we are because Ukraine could lead to a nuclear war and because people are saying untrue things on the internet and climate change is bad. And how are these people the best qualified in the world to render this quote unquote scientific judgment? Why are so many journalistic outlets from the New York Times and NPR to CNN all down the list willing to credit these people with some sort of carve out um, from the usual, you know, skepticism about that should go towards one advocacy group or another. If the National Association of Plumbers came out with a, you know, doomsday clock, everyone would say, well, who are plumbers to tell us this, right? But, but because a bunch of people who may or may not know something about, you know, nuclear warheads, um, which by at this point, everyone knows that nuclear weapons and a global thermonuclear war could destroy all life on earth. So their contribution to our understanding is pretty minimal because we already know, everyone knows the, the main point that they're trying to make and that they were main point they were trying to make in 1947. No one is under the impression that a total global thermonuclear war wouldn't be pretty bad. Um, but they don't have any particular expertise when it comes to uh, the towards military engagements towards, towards uh, the, the efficacy of diplomacy and all these kinds of things. I mean, they have people who are experts on this stuff, but so does the American enterprise Institute. So does the Carnegie endowment. So does this, you know, center for strategic studies. So does, so do dozens of other places have, have experts and um, no one, when, when, you know, the Carnegie endowment or Brookings puts out a statement about something. No one says, scientists say they say you know these experts say this and from a left of center think tank or a right of center think tank or whatever and the bigger problem with the doomsday clock thing is they've just been wrong for 70 freaking years 
Um, you know, they've been saying that we are, I think the furthest away from total global annihilation was 17 minutes. Like 17, like what happens in these 17 minutes? It's a total poetic metaphoric or almost Dolly-esque piece of garbage. There's no scientific risk analysis going on here. It is just simply a, hey, everybody, wet your pants, you should be scared kind of thing. And it shouldn't get the sort of authority, be granted the kind of authority that it has. Moreover, you know, it shouldn't be scaring the hell out of everybody. I mean, just, just taking them on their own terms, if Putin uses a battlefield tactical nuke in Ukraine, uh, there are a lot of experts who say that would be a huge military blunder on Putin's part. The only reason to do it would be for psychological reasons. And uh, there's lots of reason to believe that it would not actually uh, deter Ukrainians. It would probably just amp it up. Or it might deter them. Or it might deter NATO. Or it might amp up NATO. The point is, is that these are not scientific judgments to make. These are not things that are fed into a supercomputer and give us the objective truth. And telling people, particularly young people, for 70 years that we are seconds away from total annihilation actually isn't good for preventing total annihilation. If you tell people there's no hope, first of all, a lot of people aren't going to have kids. Um, Second of all, they're not going to live in a way where they think it's worth their effort to make meaningful contributions to improving society. You know, this is the part of the problem you get into with the climate change stuff is like, like scaremongering is of a much less, much more limited utility than people think. It kind of reminds me of, I must've told this story before. There's, there's some great documentary about the who, and um, this is not an Abbott and Costello routine. I'm alone. Um, Pete Townsend was telling the story. I think it was Pete Townsend telling the story about how, you know, when they were first starting out, Townsend broke a guitar, you know, that's part of his thing back then. And, and they would smash up a club or whatever, um, or a hotel room. And, uh, the manager would have these band meetings and say, guys, we got to talk. We are 5,000 pounds in debt. And everyone freak out because these are young, relative poor guys, right? You know, it's just starting out. They're like, oh my God, we're screwed. What are we going to do? We really got to, um, you know, we got to really change our ways and, 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 and fix this situation. And then six months later, they would have another band meeting. Boys, 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 we are now 25,000 pounds in debt. And they would pull their hair and say, oh my gosh, you know, let's get religion um, you know, let's put ourselves on a budget. We got to stop this. Maybe we'll break cheaper cigar- guitars, whatever. And then six months later or a year later, whatever the band manager says, boys, we are 1 million pounds in debt. And Pete Townsend and Daltrey and all these guys are like, all right, well, screw it. Right. You know, <laughs> let's have fun. Cause we're never paying that back. And, um, when you go around telling people that, let, you know, when you just start pumping, you know, the, the basic raw materials of nihilism, um, and fatalism into the culture, um, the, any benefit you get from a warning, um, that this clock represents is negated by the kind of, uh, fatalism and nihilism that you're breeding. And um, and I think I just think the press should be ashamed of themselves 
for taking this thing as seriously as they have for so long. And kudos to the guys at, at the Bulletin for Atomic Scientists, again, which has good people and bad people. I looked it up, you know, the <laughs> like one guy who's on the board, very smart guy, great, you know, nice guy who knows a lot about arms control stuff. Um, I used to know 25 years ago in the dog park in Colorado. He had a great dog back then. Um, there's some, some look, there appear to be some very serious scientists on this board. This is the board that that figures out how, where to move the minute hand. And then there are some real scientist guys. And then there's <laughs> there's uh, Jerry Moonbean Brown, the former governor of California, is the executive chair of this commission. Now, like, I, I'm willing to defer on all sorts of questions, including to Brown, about certain technical things. Because they know things about certain technical things. But I am not willing to defer to any of these people about how close we are to total annihilation. And by the way, just one last thing. It's like, I wish, you know, like, the original idea of the Doomsday Clock, which was this nuclear bombs could wipe us out in an instant, which is true, right, or mostly true, um, at least the, the metaphor inherent in the clock made a little sense. But now one of the other major criteria is climate change. And I'm sorry, like, climate change can be as big a problem as the, uh, you know, the, um, e what is it, the, I can't remember what EPCC, whatever, whatever the climate, you know, alarmists, whatever, you know, um, it can be as big a deal as Al Gore says it is. The timeline for total annihilation of human beings on earth from climate change. I don't think we even know what that is because like the last time the UN EPCC thing, whatever that thing is, um, last time I looked at it, they were predicting bad things a hundred years from now. If we do nothing today, you know, but by bad things, wasn't the total annihilation of human life or all life on planet earth. You know, I've done this a bunch of times where, you know, Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, all these guys kept talking about how climate change posed an existential, you know, extinction level threat to, to life on earth. And it just factually doesn't even on the terms of the experts who say it's a huge problem, but regardless, just the timeline for that is just completely different then um, the timeline for how you would calculate everyone going out in a global thermonuclear war or whether even a global thermonuclear war is imminent. And so anyway, it's garbage. It's garbage. And the big Cold War reason why I hated it is that it was always intended to scare Western leaders out of their resolve. The Soviet Union loved that thing um, because it was a way to intimidate the West and raise the stakes in the cold war rivalry. Um, it was sort of like Gandhi's BS about, you know, um, nonviolence, which he only ever aimed at. I don't say nonviolence is BS. I'm saying his double standard for nonviolence is BS. I think Martin Luther King used it very, very effectively and nobly and all that. So I'm not saying that nonviolence is a bad doctrine. I'm saying that, um, the way Gandhi used it, he basically said that, you know, he never told Hitler not to, uh, um, that violence doesn't solve anything. He told, um, he only used that on, on the West and on the Brits because the Brits and the West generally have had a rightly formed conscience and were susceptible to these arguments in ways that the, our enemies have, our enemies aren't or don't certainly in the case of the Nazis and the Soviets. And, 
Um, and so this scaremongering thing was, in was always intended to scare Western voters, Western populations. Um, every time Reagan did anything with Star Wars, SDI stuff or, um, you know, missiles in Western Europe stuff, the, the doomsday clockers would get their dresses over their heads and say, this is bringing us closer to the brink of annihilation. Um, we have as predict totally predictably the Russians this week respond to the doomsday clock thing by saying how we should all take this very, very seriously because they're trying to intimidate Ukraine and the West with nuclear weapons. And, um, and they want people to be scared of Russia using nuclear weapons. And I just hate to say it, but the doomsday clock people are aiding and abetting Russia here and it's gross and it's gross the way the media covers this thing as if it's serious. Um, and it's just crap. All right, I'm done. I apologize for getting uh, worked up. So this week I had uh, Bruce Caldwell on, who's basically the uh, definitive Hayek guy in the country at this point. Um, he's co-writing a two-volume biography of Hayek. He's written a lot about Hayek. Um, he knows a great deal about Hayek. I'm talking about the the economist and social theorist, some would say philosopher, Friedrich Hayek won the Nobel Prize in 1974. I should have, I, I think about it, I should have talked to Caldwell about his Nobel Prize um, because there was a lot of politics involved in that. They, I believe the same year they gave it to Gunnar Myrdal and it was sort of like this balance. The left gets one of their, gets one and the right gets one kind of thing. But we had this discussion that I will, I will freely admit was prompted in part by something uh, Yuval Levin uh, my friend and uh, and boss at the American Enterprise Institute suggested I ask him about, which was, and I'm going to get, there's no way of doing this without getting kind of eggheady and, and weedy. So if you want to put it on 1.5 speed or skip, you know, a couple of minutes, I'll understand. I won't take offense. Hayek has this argument in the Constitution of Liberty that gets at notions of justice and a just society and I asked about this in the sense that it, it comes across as sort of as a, um, what do you want to call it? Radical or not a radical, it feels kind of radically utilitarian in, insofar as Hayek rejects the idea or appears to reject the idea that, um, you can even have a just society. And I've, I've often struggled with this, this part of Hayek in part because, as I think I mentioned when I was talking to Caldwell, um, one of the biggest intellectual influences on me was Irving Kristol. Um, and Irving wrote this really fantastic essay called um, When Virtue Loses All Her Loveliness. Uh, we'll put it in the show notes. You can, um, just so you know, you can find the archives of the public interest, which was my... Um, my, one of my favorite things, um, at the national affairs website, it takes some clicking, but you can find it. And there's just so much great stuff back in there that if you're interested, you should poke around. You should just, you know, just look for things written by Irving Crystal, James Q. Wilson, Nat Glazer. Um, I don't want to keep listing because then it'll be like, why didn't you list so-and-so, but it's great stuff anyway. Uh, and in this essay, you know, Irving was always a two cheers for capitalism guy for um, 
for reasons that I've always respected. I've always been more of a, well, I should say I used to be a two cheers. Now I'm a two and a half cheers. Um, I'm a three cheers. If you can say capitalism rightly understood, but, uh, Anyway, that, that's really a longer conversation. Maybe that's something to write about. But, you know, Irving's problems, you know, with capitalism um, were that were, I would argue, deeply influenced by Daniel Bell, who was deeply influenced, and, and Joseph Schumpeter, and a bunch of people about how the, one of the problems with capitalism or the free market is that it tends to not... It's sort of like water, right? Water seeks its level regardless of what's in front of it. Um, and water, you know, digs canyons through the landscape and it doesn't say, well, we'll, we'll, we'll go around the pretty parts. Um, it only will say, we'll go, you know, water, again, I'm not, I don't mean to anthropomorphize water, but water, you know, water just goes where it's nature and where the, the context um, allows. And so if there's a big boulder, it'll go around the boulder, but over time it'll wear down even the boulder and the, the sort of the through line um, criticism of capitalism from sort of the neoconservatives and others who are generally pro market and pro capitalism um, is that capitalism over time erodes even the virtues that make capitalism possible, right? Capitalism erodes um, the family. Capitalism erodes traditional religion. Um, and over time, and those are the things, those are the wellsprings of social capital from which capitalism emerges and cannot survive without. I've always thought that there was a lot of merit to this argument, but I also thought there were drawbacks to it. And I'm not going to get, super deep in the, in the weeds onto both. Cause that's the kind of thing I should probably prepare in my head a little bit more than I have this morning. Um, but you know, the sort of argument I think, and I, I tend to think that all of this is comes out of Schumpeter. I, I should get an intellectual historian on here to tell him, you know, cause there's this thing, I know I'm rambling here. I apologize. I'm just trying to get my head together. Um, I'm one of these guys who loves the begats of intellectual history. Um, you know, in the Bible, there's, you know, Josiah begat, Hedadiah, Begiah, blah, blah, blah. And you just go through this long family tree kind of thing. I love the begats when it comes to certain aspects of intellectual history. And um, I kind of think that, that Daniel Bell, James Burnham, Irving Crystal, um, all these guys are more indebted to Schumpeter than, um, than is often recognized. I'm not saying that these guys aren't huge monumental thinkers in their own right. Um, I just think that a lot of these arguments about the managerial revolution, about the new class, all these things, they really come out of Schumpeter. I'd be kind of curious if there's, uh, um, you know, you know, if, if this is all, if this turtles all the way down, I'm kind of curious what turtles, people would say come before Schumpeter. I can think of some, but um, anyway, that's all a digression. Where was I? Oh, so the cultural contradictions of capital. It is, it is true. This is an idea that comes up every few years as if it's a novel insight. Um, you know, there'll be someone who say, conservatives don't even understand that capitalism is, you know, 
hostile to traditional values and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, yeah, I know the argument. Anyway, so that's where Irving comes from a little bit on this. And, you know, the sort of a lot of the neocon thinkers on these grounds, you know, want to unleash free market and libertarian principles on the stuff that they don't like, but they also want to build high walls around the stuff that they do like. And I do too. I think there are certain institutions that would be destroyed if we made them capitalist. Um, um, uh, you know, it'd be horrific if the Catholic church simply became a for-profit institution. Um, we're not, we don't have to get into the whole microcosm, macrocosm, Gemeinschaft, Gesellschaft stuff again, but you know, the family should not be a for-profit institution. Um, in the same way, for-profit institutions cannot be run like families. Um, and, uh, so anyway, back to Hayek, right? So Hayek who hated the concept of social justice as do I. And one of the reasons I hate it is I find Hayek completely persuasive about the social justice thing. He had what appeared to Irving and others, um, skepticism about the concept of just a just society in and of itself. And I, th- I, I have to go back and l- read the relevant bits of constitution of Liberty. Cause it's not like I am in a position to accuse Irving crystal of lacking reading comprehension. Um, but I'm coming around for reasons I got into with Caldwell to think that this is not altogether fair or right. So I started, I pulled out, I pulled up while I was talking and yammering to you. Um, when virtue loses all of her loveliness. And let me just read some excerpts again, feel free to skip ahead. Feel free to go listen to another podcast. It's fine. Um, in the section of this essay, uh, titled subtitled from bourgeois society to a quote unquote free society, Irving writes, I can think of no better way of indicating the distance that capitalism has traveled from its original ideological origins than by contrasting the most intelligent defender of capitalism today with his predecessors. I refer to Friedrich von Hayek, who has as fine and powerful a mind as is to be found anywhere, and whose constitution of liberty is one of the most thoughtful works of the last decades. In that book, he offers the following argument against viewing capitalism as a system that incarnates any idea of justice. Okay, now I'm going to read, it's a little toothy, um, the passage that Irving is quoting by Friedrich Hayek. So this is Hayek now. Most people will object not to the bare fact of inequality, but to the fact that the differences in reward do not correspond to any recognizable differences in the merit of those who receive them. Basically, what Hayek is saying here is that complaints about inequality aren't really complaints about inequality. It's complaints that the people who benefit from society don't deserve to. Okay, more Hayek. The answer commonly given to this is that a free society on the whole achieves this kind of justice. This, however, is an indefensible contention if by justice is meant proportionality of reward to moral merit. Any attempt to found the case for freedom on this argument is very damaging to it 
since it concedes that material rewards ought to be made to correspond to recognizable merit and then opposes the conclusion that most people will draw from this by an, by an assertion which is untrue. The proper answer is that in a free society, it is neither desirable nor practicable that material rewards should be made generally to correspond to what men recognize as merit, and that it is an essential characteristic of a free society that an individual's position should not necessarily depend on the views that his fellows hold about the merit he has acquired. And then there's an ellipse, or ellipses. Um, a society in which the position of the individual was made to correspond to human ideas of moral merit would therefore be the exact opposite of a free society. It would be a society in which people were rewarded for duty performed instead of for success. Another ellipses, and then, but if nobody's knowledge is sufficient to guide all human action, there is also no human being who is competent to reward all efforts according to merit. And then Irving says, and then, so this is Irving Crystal writing now, this argument is admirable both for its utter candor and for its firm opposition to all those modern authoritarian ideologies, whether rationalist or irrationalist, which give a self-selected elite the right to shape men's lives and fix their destinies according to its preconceived notions of good and evil, merit and demerit. But it is interesting to note what Hayek is doing. He is opposing a free society to a just society. Like opposing is a bad word here, just so you know. He's basically contrasting or putting in conflict. This is me fixing Irving, which I feel is a sin. Basically he's saying he is, he is contrasting a free society to a just society. Because he says, while we know what freedom is, we have no generally accepted knowledge of what justice is. Elsewhere, he writes, and then he quotes another passage from Hayek, um, since differentials in wealth and income are not the effect of anyone's design or intentions, it is meaningless to describe the manner in which the market distributed the good things of this world among particular people as just or unjust. No test or criteria have been found or can be found by which such rules of quote-unquote social justice can be assessed. They would have to be determined by the arbitrary will of the holders of power. And then Irving says, Now, it may be this is the best possible defense that can be made of a free society, but if this is the case, one can fairly say that quote-unquote capitalism is or was one thing, and a free society, another. For capitalism, during the first hundred years or so of its existence, did, did lay claim to being a just social order in the meaning later given to that concept by Paul Elmer Moore, who said, such a distribution of power and privileges and of property as the symbol and instrument of these as at once will satisfy the distinctions of reason among the superior and will not outrage the feelings of the inferior. What Paul Elmer Moore was saying there that basically was people basically bought into the idea that if you got rich, you deserve to get rich. And if you were poor, you deserve to be poor. Um, um, I'm not sure that's entirely true, but whatever. 
Okay, so I realize that was a lot, and if you're still around, thank you, or what the hell's wrong with you, I don't know. But, you know, I, I'm just going to geek out on this. Okay, so I'm very proud to say that I pushed back on, on Bruce Caldwell when he was starting to describe Hayek's system as one of neutral rules and whatnot. And in a familiar refrain on this podcast, um, I pointed out that what we call neutral rules are in fact deeply and profoundly uh, morally rich rules. In fact, they're among the most morally rich rules um, ever um, achieved by humanity in part because they're successful. And this is a really hugely important point. I can come up with all sorts of really friggin' awesome, superior, um, closer to God, righteous rules about how to organize society. But if they have no chance of being successfully followed or implemented, who gives a rat's ass? The rules of liberalism aren't just um, moral in their own right. They're even more moral because they work, because they are successful, because um, they work at scale and produce better outcomes than alternative rules. And so, again, just to repeat myself, <sighs> where to start? So after the Treaty of Westphalia, which concluded the wars of religion or the Hundred Year Wars or whatever, the basic consensus that emerged from exhaustion, not from righteous principle, but from exhaustion, exhaustion uh, with uh, murdering people in huge numbers because they disagreed about, um, you know, what the catechism or some theological thing. I'm not, I'm not trying to denigrate um, or dismiss the importance of theological differences between Protestants and Catholics or different kinds of Protestants. I think those are all important on their own terms and, and whatever. I'm just willing as an outsider to say they're not worth murdering each other over. They're really not worth murdering fellow Christians over. Just call me crazy. Okay. Um, tyranny of small differences is a huge problem in human history. And so one of the things that came out of that period was this idea that we were no longer, when I say we, I mean the West or certain parts of the West, because this spread over time. Um, we're no longer going to settle disputes of conscience with swords and spears. And um, again, this rule, which had all sorts of exceptions at the time in different places in different contexts, right? But this basic idea emerges because they tried every other system, every other way of going. And it led to a lot of people dying. And so there was like, and it led to a lot of war and a lot of impoverishment and, and all the rest. So they're like, all right, let's just stop doing that. And from that emerged whole strands of liberalism, about freedom of conscience, freedom of speech, um, freedom of association, freedom of worship. Uh, and you get, um, and then, and those ideas in turn, led to flowering of other ideas about liberalism. And again, there are other strains, you know, the right to confront your accuser goes, you know, has a long history to it. Um, uh, this idea that I always focus on that the man's home is his castle has a long history to it. 
um, and leads inexorably. I, I shouldn't say inexorably. It leads inevitably to the Fourth Amendment. Um, uh, you can trace various aspects of free speech down, you know, down to the ancient Greeks. That's all fine. The point is, is that these ideas, through one might say a a, a, a process of Hayekian trial and error, start to take hold. And when they start to take hold, they start having really positive results in terms of economic growth, in terms of social peace, in terms of flowering of artistic and 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 literary accomplishments. They they work. Um, and they work because if you let people's ingenuity, people's innovation, um, m- driven by market rewards, um, proceed without too much meddling and interference by the state, um, you get this, um, you know, virtuous um, uh, cycle of building success upon success and. Um, and then you get copycat effects, right? This is, you know, one of the big arguments about how we got capitalism in the first place is that each nation or city state, because it was often like in cities, would have modest success by adopting some of these rules. And then another city state would say, hey, look what they're doing. Let's go even further. And you have a virtuous cycle building upwards. And very quickly, in terms of historical terms, people start get, getting richer healthier, um, and all the rest. This is, you know, again, this is the story of of my book in many respects. And, um, but we take, here's the problem is we take, and I think Irving takes, um, in, in, in this context. And this is the thing Hayek takes, they're both in error here because they're both working on this assumption that these rules about the liberal order, these rules about, you know, uh, um, constitutional processes or even biblical processes, right? I mean, like the idea of, of not murdering people, um, the idea of not stealing, um, the idea of, 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 of being able to worship God as you see fit, uh, both Hayek and Irving, I would argue, to a certain extent, take these rules for granted and don't incorporate them into their ideas of a just society. They just simply take them for granted. They think it's like the hardware and they just want to argue about the software. And the problem is, is that it's all software. And um, we can see if you look in Russia, right, right now, um, you know, the idea that your property inherently belongs to you is not taken for granted because your property can be taken away from you. Um, the idea that you um, can't speak your conscience is not taken for granted because you can't speak your conscience. And so a lot of these things that, um, whether it's Irving and Hayek here or a lot of the post-liberal types today, um, they just simply... Uh, stand on the shoulders of those um, institutions and those rules and, and think that they can see farther to a better system. But the problem is to get to that better system, they got to climb off the shoulders of those rules. Um, I'm not, I know that's not the best analogy, but I think it makes the point. Um, You know, they, 
it's, it's sort of like this phrase I always use about people who um, love to stand on a sto- soapbox and take a sledgehammer to the soapbox that they're standing on. All these people who love, free, this is sort of what I was getting at when I was talking to Keith Whittington the other day. So many people love free speech, but some of the people who love it the most are the ones who love to use free speech to argue for taking away the free speech of other people. And so anyway, my point here is like, I am entirely on team Hayek when it comes to the question of social justice. And I think that's really what um, Hayek is getting at. Again, I have to go back and look at the, the specific passages of, of uh, constitution of Liberty. But I don't think if you sat down with Friedrich Hayek, and I would love to know what Hayek thought of this essay. I, um, I look forward to reading Caldwell's book. If he addresses that, because, um, I, I just don't believe that if you actually sat down with, with, you know, with, with Professor Hayek, um, that he would say um, he has no concept of a just society. And that's what Irving is accusing of him of here. Um, the, the, at least, it's, well, he's accusing him of it, I think. And the problem with that is that, um, so like, there's a huge difference between Hayek's arguments about social justice and arguments about justice. Hayek has a lot of views about justice. Hayek loves English common law. He loves, in part because it's, um, it's iterative, right? It goes from the ground up. It looks at specific cases um, between, you know, uh, specific, you know, plaintiffs um, and defendants and, um, and says, you know, and, and keeps it all granular and is based on problem solving in the context, right? Two farmers are arguing about who has rights to a creek. It, the judge doesn't come up with some grand level of abstraction. He starts with what are the actual facts on the ground that these two people are arguing about? And is there a way consistent with law and tradition to satisfy this to the betterment of everybody? And that's why he loves, that's, part of Hayek's love of, of, of common laws is basically this trial and error, emergent property kind of stuff. And uh, I just don't believe that Hayek didn't believe that that system wasn't part of justice as most people understand what justice is, right? Um, he was arguably the 20th century's most passionate defender of, you know, liberalism rightly understood and the ideas and concepts that define classical liberalism are all about concepts of justice. You know, again, all of your rights, the right to property, the right to speech, the right to free association, free travel, free conscience, all of those things are uh, embedded in liberalism and they have, they, they are impossible to maintain if they are not part of a conception of justice rightly understood. Where Hayek is arguing about this, this social justice stuff is he is saying that you cannot live in a society where um, the powers that be get to decide, well, these kinds of people or this individual is more deserving of basically resource, money or rents from property or whatever, right? But, you know, money, resources. Um, that this person is more deserving or these kinds of people are more deserving. And so therefore we should muck with the normal market processes, um, the normal operating of civil society and give these people extra stuff in the name of justice. 
not saying the state can't do that. You're just saying that it's not justice. And if you go back and I did this for my underrated second book, if you go back and you look at all the different definitions of social justice, there is no working definition of social justice. Social justice is, I mean, yes, there is within the Catholic church and it's a much different one than the ones that a lot of people on the left want to use. Um, but as a political matter, there, all social justice means is um, my team should be in charge of allocating goods and resources. Um, and it's all about redistributive economics. And, um, and the problem with it is that there is no conception of social justice in the, in the way that people use it that doesn't involve giving some group of people, some party, some faction, some ruler, the carte blanche to um, pick winners and losers, to reward allies and punish foes. Um, and uh, you can come up with all sorts of, you know, cathedrals of rhetoric about how, well, you know, but these people really would know how to pick the winners and these people deserve to win and blah, 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 blah. Hayek's just saying that, you, that it just doesn't work, but he is also saying it doesn't work in the macrocosm, right? It doesn't work in the part of the world that is about contracts and commerce and how people deal with strangers. Hayek, I am sure, has all sorts of notions of quote unquote, social justice for how the family works. I am sure that he has also or had all sorts of notions about, um, you know, rewarding children based on things other than pure merit or distributing resources in the family for reasons other than pure merit. And so I think that basically Hayek and Crystal are talking past each other on this. And it's in part because Hayek is sort of making the same mistake that Irving is of simply taking for granted the profound moral content that is embedded in, um, in liberal democratic capitalism. Um, and I think that one of the problems that we're facing today is the people who want to move beyond liberal democratic capitalism um, are making the same mistake. I don't think that, you know, most of these guys at compact or, or, or the, the nationalist, whatever that group is. Um, I don't think they want dictators and I don't think that they all want to sort of um, completely overturn property rights and free speech rights and all these kinds of things. I think they, I think they probably have a whole suite of policies I disagree with, but I don't think they're mustache twirling um, villains and would be totalitarians. Um, what I do think is, is that they naively want to pocket all of this, all of the wins inherent in liberalism, um, maybe call them something else, maybe ground them in some other doctrine or faith uh, so as to protect them. Um, and then say, but on these, in these other spheres of life, we really should have free reign to sort of meddle and tweak and um, play uh, games rewarding winners and losers because we're really that smart. And, I think one of the things that history shows is that once you concede that kind of authority and expertise to experts or partisans or, or, you know, or factions, or whatever, uh, there's, because there is no, no real limiting principle that they can articulate, um, they end up uh, saying, well, if we just had a little bit more power, 
a little bit more authority, um, if we could just get these critics to shut up, um, then everything would click into place. And it never clicks into place. Um, and I think you can find that story in all sorts of regimes and systems and countries that started out fairly well, had rebellions or, re, or elite, you know, uh, transfers that started out uh, fairly high-minded and sincere and with some decent ambitions um, and didn't end up that way. And I think that's really kind of the story of the, the, the French Revolution. Um, you can make an argument that it's a story of the, at least the first Russian Revolution, what, 1905. Um, um, definitely... I just think there wasn't a lot of since a lot of decency to the second Russian, the Bolshevik revolution, but you get my point. Um, uh, the great thing about liberalism rightly understood is that it comes with built in limitations on what our rulers can do. Um, it doesn't buy into like, Oh, well, Ooh, look, here's a new idea that says, um, if we have the right rulers, they don't have to conform to the rules of limited government and constitutionalism because they're right and right people shouldn't have to, you know, this gets at the very core of the whole Federalist Papers. If men were angels thing, you don't worry about angels being corrupted or giving themselves permission to go beyond the rules, um, because they're angels, but men are human beings are really good at rationalizing their wants and desires um, by making them sound like some sort of necessity in the moment or some grand abstract principle. Um, all right. So I did all that. Got it. I don't, you got, I have no idea if people are going to be mad at me about all that. Oh, the last thing I mentioned here was Schumpeter's children. I'm going to have to give this short shrift, but I've been consistent. I've actually talked about all the things, maybe not in the order I said them, but all the things I talked about up front, my friend and, um, and, and beloved former, um, remnant podcaster Charles Cook uh, sent me an email the other day, forwarded me this piece by Andrew Stiles. Let me see if I can find it real quick. Um, Andrew Stiles is a really talented kid. I wish he wrote more. Um, I shouldn't necessarily call him a kid for all I know. He's like 30 now. But he wrote this great piece. It's over the Free Beacon. And the headline is Analysis. We need a total and complete shutdown of rich white liberals having children. Um, and the subhead is until we can figure out what the hell is going on now back to Jack for a second. Jack sent me, um, this email just with the subject header Schumpeter's children. Um, because Jack, you know, as people know, helped me enormously with suicide of the West. The big theme of, of suicide of the West is that the biggest problem facing the West isn't a lack of pride in Western civilization um, isn't a lack of um, respect for Western civilization. Oh, there is, that is a problem. That's, I shouldn't say it that way. It's not that it's, there's a lack of pride. It's that there's a lack of gratitude. Um, we should be extremely grateful and for, and again, we don't have to call it Western civilization. We can call it liberalism. I call it the miracle. Um, but we have a lack of gratitude for the immense moral, social, economic, technological, scientific progress that we have made that um, was 
contingent upon all of these things I was talking about earlier about, you know, the, the, the stuff that comes out of, you know, after Westphalia about not killing people because of their religious beliefs, about free speech, about innovation, about property rights, about all of these hard, hard one intellectual moral victories um, that came from tens of thousands of years of trial and error with all sorts of bad ideas that allowed us to sort of to, to pull ourselves out of the muck of man's natural condition. And, um, and, you know, when people talk about a lack of patriotism in the United States, what really they're sort of better, they should better be talking about is a lack of gratitude for the United States. And I'm not saying that you can't criticize the bad stuff because we've done bad things. Um, bad things have certainly happened at the hands of Americans and American governments. And there's no getting around that. Um, and one of the reasons why you should care about that stuff is because um, when you look at it, it helps you understand how much progress we've made. But we just basically, we teach people to be ungrateful. We teach people to be entitled. And, um, and I think that that ultimately is the sort of um, the, you know, immune uh, disease that we have in this country is that our, um, many of our best and brightest, um, or at least our mo the people who have reason to be the most grateful basically serve as antibodies, um, attacking healthy organs, um, of the body politic. And I hate the metaphor of body politic, but they, they attack our, our healthy institutions and organs, um, because of an excess of their sense of, of, of both justice and entitlement and grievance. And, um, you know, like literally tearing down the statues. Um, I don't mind, you know, I mean, I, I don't I think everything should be done lawfully. Uh, but, you know, tearing down or having removed uh, Confederate generals, particularly statues of Confederate generals that were put up in the 1960s as an FU to the civil rights movement does not bother me in the slightest. Um, uh, and at the other end of the spectrum, tearing down statues of abolitionists um, who gave their lives fighting to end slavery in the civil war because they're white dudes in statue form is among the most idiotic things uh, culturally, philosophically, ethically, morally I can think of. Um, it's just so profoundly stupid. And that's what was happening during the, the great uh, riot of iconoclasm in the wake of George Floyd at the university of Wisconsin. I wrote about this at the time. Then she started just tearing down statues of like the, these guys who formed their own brigades to fight the South and end slavery. And um, because the sort of know nothing kids uh, just said, Ooh, white guy um, in statue form, he must be bad. And that is a reflexive antibody attack on, on the good things about our past. It is sort of Howard Zinnism taken to the 10th degree. So anyway, uh, I'm obsessed with this point about Schumpeter, about, about this point that Schumpeter makes um, about how the biggest opponents to bourgeois values and capitalist society and market society in general are um, the people who should be most grateful for it, the children of really rich people. Um, and as, and if you broaden it out to sort of class stuff, um, 
the children of bourgeois families. You know, so Lenin didn't grow up poor. Um, most of the revolutionaries in the Russian Revolution, most of the sort of would-be revolutionaries of sort of the pure Huron statement, SDS variety, were all kids of privilege. They're just bored, entitled brats who are, you know, sort of what C.S. Lewis would call men without chests, you know, people looking to find meaning in life by attacking this fundamentally decent and successful society um, because they don't know enough about anything else to attack anything else and they're bored. So Stiles had this, I thought it was a pretty funny piece about running through the examples of all of these kids, you know, like this kid and this girl who's the, uh, I'm sorry, this non-binary person who's the daughter of the number two Democrat in the house. I think it's Catherine Murray, is that it? Who was arrested for assaulting a cop last week after she was spray painting cops, all cops are bastards. Anyway, and so I find this, there's this whole test, you know, there's this whole trend of, of the sort of trustafarian, hippie, radical, liberal kids of rich people who take for granted that they should have the time and the resources uh, to go be troublemakers and would-be rebels with the added, you know, sort of in the, in the back of their head, the knowledge that, you know, the parents are going to bail them out. And they're doing it on behalf of, they think, the downtrodden and oppressed who, first of all, would not take the level of wealth that these people have for granted, but second of all, would benefit far more from, you know, a system, the free market system than any other system. Anyway, he sent me this thing. It was about Schumpeter, uh, the Schumpeter's children thing. It's a minor obsession of mine. Uh, feel free to send me examples of this kind of thing from time to time. Just put the title Schumpeter's children in the headline. And I feel like I completely uh, flannel mouthed and buttered this, 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 this segment. Um, but the basic idea is if you go back and you look throughout history, um, it is the bored, entitled children of fairly prosperous people who are the revolutionaries, um, who are the radicals, um, in part because actual hardworking poor people are too tired and have too many other important priorities um, to talk, to get caught up in sort of boutique salon eggheadery. And um, the, just to tie this all together, the forces of social justice all tend to be um, driven by, I shouldn't say all, you know, but most of these people, um, they chose these professions, they chose these careers either because they were inoculated to the charms of pros material prosperity or they knew they were going to have material prosperity anyway, so they didn't really care and they thought they could devote themselves to more radical endeavors. Um, this was one of Irving Kristol's major complaints. Again, I think he's downstream of Schumpeter of what was happening with what he called the new class. Um, you had all of these people, even the people who go into business um, and go particularly go into journalism and academia, they're kind of compromising. They're picking, they think that they're heroic because they're not um, pursuing the most highly paid professions. And that, therefore that makes them rejecting, you know, that means they're rejecting capitalism and, and, you know, bourgeois values and all that kind of stuff. And instead they're picking these uh, sort of managerial class, um, these intellectual professions, and that, that radicalism and ingratitude 
starts to infect what they teach if they go into academia. It infects how they cover the news if they go into the um, into the into journalism, and um, I think you see that all around. Journalism used to be much more of a blue collar kind of job. There were a lot of people who came from humble beginnings who were sort of like um, Charlie Lunchbucket types, and now like being in journalism is kind of like what being in publishing was in the 19, say, 40s and 50s, where if you were, or what going into the uh, military or the priesthood was in certain, you know, medieval periods, you know, if you weren't the the promising kid of a prosperous family, establishment family, in, you know, for a long time in Europe, you, um, and that was usually the case if you were a second son, um, because of primogeniture, right? So like you go off into the army or you move to America or you become a priest and in sort of genteel wasp dominated America, there were a lot of people who went into publishing, um, because it would allow them to have a really comfortable lifestyle and seem like they were more exotic, but also sort of more accepted. And I think today there are a lot of people who come from very prosperous, very, you know, affluent backgrounds who go into journalism and academia as a way to sort of say that they are maintaining their credibility of outside the sort of market system um, and lets them sort of be part of this sort of adversarial institution that criticizes and shows profound ingratitude for um, the system that produced them. Now they take sledgehammers to the soapboxes that they stand on. And, um, um, and, the amazing thing is, as I was saying before, with liberalism generally, we tend to see the value and importance of the of the, the rights and privileges and obligations of a liberal order when they're taken away from us or when they're threatened. And so the second, you know, you don't have all of your rights in court or the second you don't have your right to free speech or the second you don't have your right to free association, all of a sudden... Those don't seem like neutral rules anymore. Those seem like profoundly moral rules. Uh, those seem like the essence of how we define justice. And you see lots of journalists who are part of this school of thought, this broader school of thought that thinks the Constitution is this antiquated impediment to social justice, which it is. I mean, it's not antiquated, but it is an impediment to the concept of social justice. Um, and that... It holds back sort of the technocratic experts from having their way and doing what they want. And, um, you know, there's certain, certain parts of the Constitution that should be totally dead letters, like the Second Amendment. Um, but, uh, you know, the First Amendment, a lot of these people don't like the, all the sort of religious freedoms that it gives or the free association freedoms that it at least used to give. Um, but the Second Donald Trump started talking about how the, the press was the enemy of the people and that we have to do something about libel laws. All of a sudden, a lot of people were talking about how important the Constitution was. A lot of people were talking about how deeply morally um, profound uh, the First Amendment freedoms for the press are. Um, and it just turns out that if you, when you rely on these rights uh, and everything's going fine, you think they're neutral. And then when things 
change, you realize, no, they're actually profoundly, profoundly moral. And um, I will now stop talking, and I, I really apologize for going so long. Um, and uh, I'll talk to you next time. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.